Welcome back to the Motorsports in Focus podcast. Today we have automotive photographer Andrew Maturko joining us once again to do a deeper dive into the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, what makes it such a special event, and what it's like to shoot the event as a photographer. Hope you enjoy. Pikes Peak is uh, is hands down my favorite event of anything that we do, especially through Road Scholars. It's um, It was on my bucket list before the first time I shot it, and now it's like it's one that I I'm I'm going to be a lifer. I'm going to be going to it pretty much as long as I possibly can, whether I'm either shooting it or someday I hope to race it myself. But um, it's a really it's it's such a unique race because it's kind of the last of its kind. It's one of the oldest races in the, the Western Hemisphere. It's been going on for now. It's in its hundred and first year. And the only times that they didn't run the race were were in uh, was during World War One and World War Two. I think they even ran it through the, the Great Depression, hmm. but uh, there's nothing about the race really like makes sense. You know, if you put it down on paper, it has as many turns as the Nurburgring. It climbs up the side of a mountain, which has its own microclimate. There's all sorts of little animals and critters that can get in your way. Everything, every which way, there's somewhere to crash, uh, either into a tree or off the side of a mountain or into a huge rock, and. Uh, you know, it just, everything about it's fucked up. It's just crazy. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first uh, time you were there? Was it 2020? Yeah. So, uh, it was right during the pandemic and we thought it was going to get canceled, but they just delayed it. So it ended up being run in, uh, I think it was August, uh, August or September. I can't quite remember, but, um, so that was interesting to shoot because the, like all the normal shots that, that you see, like the amazing sunset from, uh, from, devil's playground area like that wasn't there the sun was in a totally different position Mm. uh, the the times when the sun would rise ended up being totally different so the guys got i think even less time on the mountain um but yeah i mean from that first time i was absolutely hooked i didn't even uh in hindsight i didn't even really prepare for it aside from trying to get my fitness up a little bit knowing that it was the the altitude was going to beat me up but I didn't really spend any time looking through old photos or, or any of that. I, I came to it completely with, uh, you know, a clean slate. Yeah. Fresh look. Yeah. And I think that was part of like the beauty of it was like, everything was brand new and, uh, I wasn't skewed at all to, to shoot kind of, I had no, uh, I didn't have like the base, the baseline shots that I, you know, sometimes you go to a track or like Daytona or Sebring or something like that. And you already know half the shots that you're going to shoot just to uh, just because you have to the classic shots yeah and uh in 2020 i completely skipped it yeah i mean even before that where did did you have any exposure to pike's peak before that like just like video games or looking at photos or blog posts or anything like that yeah i mean the first gran turismo uh first gran turismo they had the suzuki escudo that uh nobuhuro tajima his nickname is monster. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the, it was 900 horsepower and just under 2000 pounds, um, with two engine front and rear engines. So, you know, that was always like the craziest car in, in the first Gran Turismo. And I think they had parts of that course that you could, could run in that. I don't really remember because it was probably too hard and I would just skip it. But, um, that was my first exposure really to Pike's peak. It was, um, the little like slideshow that they had in, in Gran Turismo and racing that car in that. Yeah. 
Yeah, for me, it was like looking at Speed Hunters articles and blog posts. Basically, is the first time I really got any exposure to it. And then again, I it was like reinforced later with video games, which I think is a really interesting topic all on its own. The fact that uh, a lot of people, I think, get into cars or maybe have their first experience through video games, which is a that was just a really interesting idea. Like I remember, uh, I wasn't playing Gran Turismo, I had Forza, I was an Xbox, Xbox kid, and, uh, I, Forza, as far as I know, I don't think it ever had Pike's Peak, but the rally games had Pike's Peak, uh, like the WRC games and stuff, and so that's where I was able to, or it was probably Dirt, Dirt mm-hmm. Rally had it, I think, back when, uh, like the first yeah. Dirt Rally. So that actually, uh, they made that for PlayStation 2, and, uh, and Cam Ingram, the, the owner of our company, and, uh, the guy who was racing on behalf of road scholars that was that he had that game and he was kind of trying to use it to get a sense of where the course you know the to memorize the course and uh it's amazing so like seeing in the video game and trying to get a sense of of the race through that and then being there in person it's completely completely different there's nothing that could even prepare you aside from driving the mountain every day to really understand what each turn is like and like the elevation changes and how much each one of those turns looks the same. It's, uh, it's completely, completely different. I think in, uh, in those dirt games, you only had a choice between the Sebastian Loeb, uh, Sebastian Seb, Seb Loeb. Yep. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sebastian Loeb's, uh, that Peugeot, I think it was a nine Oh six that mm-hmm. he ran that he held the record with for a while. Yeah. So you either had that or, um, I can't remember what the other one is. I think it was a, a Peugeot 405 or something. It was like you had a choice of two Peugeots to race in that <laughs> that video game. Yeah. Yeah, I remember playing that. And I remember thinking at the time, like, it was obviously super cool because it, it really was like with the video games, um, you know, the Nürburgring uh, is such a long track that I feel like anybody really playing video games doesn't really want to drive it because you have to learn it all. And all you end up doing is just crashing constantly. And I wonder if uh, Pikes was the same way for people. But at the same time, it's really enticing because it's a challenge just to make it to the end of the thing and without flying off, you know? So everyone knows Nürburgring and there's such like kind of a mystique surrounding it. But I don't think people realize that Nürburgring and Pikes Peak have almost the same number of turns. It's 156 turns. But if you, you know, if you disconnected the course, from end to end, start finish line, and then laid it up the side of Pikes Peak. They have a lot of the same kind of turns, the the off camber turns, the like climbs and drops and elevation. Are there any times that the cars get airborne on uh, Pikes Peak? Oh, uh, the road surface is so bad that half the time the the front tires aren't even touching. Hmm. That's a that's a problem in itself, you know, because obviously if your tires aren't touching, if you try to get on the brakes or try to steer, like you have no contact surface. There's no grip. So, you know, that's a, that's a lot of where people, people don't realize that you may not like it. You're not really always looking for the fastest line because there's probably, there can be faster lines through, through a section of a course, but you have to drive the smoothest section. So, you know, I think, uh, Lonnie Unser last year in the, in her GT4, in one of the practice sessions, she, uh, I think she was in cog cut. Yeah. She was on cog cut 
And uh, last year, Cogcut was really, really bad, and uh, she had gotten hard on the brakes. It's a uh, for those who haven't seen it, Cogcut is this. Uh, it's one of the last sections before you get up to the summit, and there's a long kind of straightaway section, but it's really the roughest because of uh, the the freeze and thaw. There's all these frost heaves. Um, all the the granite from underneath the road kind of washes out and uh, they had started to repave it. So there's no, there's no reference point. You can't see where the bumps are. You can't see where like the kind of line in the road deviates and moves around. So uh, anyway, long story short, she was in a, in a really fast section and um, she'd gotten hard on her brakes and the ABS, I guess, freaked out because half the time the tires weren't on the ground and she just wasn't able to, to slow the car down and ended up going right off the, the end of the course and landing out and out and there's this big pile of rocks kind of near where the, uh, the cog cut railway comes up. So luckily she was okay. The car was pretty badly beat up. I think they rebuilt it with a, another tub, but you know, there's, there's a bunch of sections like that, especially once you get up and above tree line that it's, it gets really rough, really bumpy. And, you know, tires, front tires, back tires off the ground, you know, there's full compression where the, the, you know, the cars are bottoming out and dragging parts of the, uh, parts of the car on the pavement, you know, it makes Sebring look like it's smooth. (laughs) There's not many, uh, places that can, can make that claim. Yeah. I mean, when you, if you talk to any of the, uh, the engineers or, you know, the guys that are doing, uh, chassis design and, uh. I forget what that, that exactly would be called, um, you know, chassis tuning. Yeah. That was the word I was looking for. I talked to any of the guys that do chassis tuning and from a, a race course to, to Pike's peak, it's completely different. Like you, you need to set the car up with as much travel as you can get and within reason and, uh, make it as the dampening as soft as possible to just absorb all of that and make it really, really compliant over all those crazy bumps that you're always, your tires are always in contact with the ground. I, so you're going back with road scholars this year, right? Again. And yep. you guys are obviously racing, but you've got a new car. Yeah. So, uh, the last two years we've entered with a, a GT four club sport that we, we painted here in house. So it's got, it's basically a little race car with a hundred thousand dollar paint job. <laughs> um, but Cam competed. Cam Ingram, owner of the company, he uh, he raced that car for the last two years, and uh, the first year they they shortened the course because there was too much ice and snow up at the top, so they only ran up to Devil's Playground, and then uh, this last year they uh, the weather was atrocious too, but they ran the course all the way from bottom to top, so he ended up getting first in his class and something like 17th overall he did really well you finished within 30 seconds of reese mill in, in the car that we're running this year wow. which is uh this twin turbocharged gt3 r that uh joey Seely and his team at emotion engineering completely stripped down to a sh- uh, bare tub and went through it and rebuilt the entire car with pike's peak in mind hmm. that's really interesting too because i i don't know about you but i've always had the thought of like you know, what could some of these GT cars do if they had a lot of extra horsepower and which is exactly what that is. And which I guess is not that uncommon at Pikes. Also, there's a lot of modified race cars like that. 
Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of different classes. There's a, you know, they they run everything from showroom stock sort of classes to uh, stuff like we're running, and then even beyond that. So um, the last three or four years, the king of the mountain has been Robin Shoot. He's driving this Wolf Indy car looking thing with uh, a turbocharged Honda VTEC motor of some sort. But um, you know, it it there's open wheel cars. There's some of the manufacturers bring crazy stuff. There's like you know we have also have in the Ingram collection the 935 19 the uh, the tribute to the the Moby Dick. 935. Uh, Jeff's award has been running that car for the last couple of years since 2020 took off 2021 and uh, came back last year. He's running again this year, but that's, there's just such a widespread from like really grassroots um, homebrew crazy stuff all the way up to factory entries. Yeah. Ford's bringing that uh, electric van, right? Yeah, Ford's <laughs> bringing that. Uh, they're bringing the, like, I think it's the fully electric super van, whatever they call it. They uh, they once had the, the Honda, uh, not a Honda, they had a uh, the F1 engine in the van that uh, that was way, way back when. Yeah, I, I remember, like, I could be remembering wrong, but I almost think it was uh, an actual F1 car that they literally just, like, dropped the body of a van on. Mm-hmm. Or somebody did something like yep. that. <laughs> It's yeah. sort of like you remember the. That's what, I, that's what I thought they would be bringing out uh, this year with Romain Dumas running it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that van where there it was an XJ220, I think, and they dropped their Sprinter mm-hmm. van on top of the chassis, like literally an XJ220 with a van body. Yeah, I remember that from Top Gear. Yeah, <laughs> I think Richard Hammond was ripping around in that thing. But but yeah, this year this year is exciting because not there, so Ford is bringing that that super van. But um, Alpine, 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 uh, they're bringing out a like a proper Pikes Peak car as well. And uh, Radford is bringing out, they're bringing out an entry too. So both of those are first timers, uh, you know, bringing those cars out or really like entering at Pikes Peak. Um, but they, they've got some serious drivers behind them too. So it's going to be really exciting to see what those guys do and if it becomes like a regular thing, if, you know, Ford starts bringing the factory entries and some of the, uh, the European companies start coming back out and it, it's kind of funny. Pikes Peak has more of an allure in Europe, I guess, because there's so much of like a, so much more of a hill climb culture out there. And, um, but uh, you know, it, it'll be really exciting if, if they start taking it seriously, like Peugeot used to. And, um, I mean, even back in the day, Chevy, uh, Audi, all these, all these people, or all these manufacturers used to really send out, you know, they'd throw a ton of money at, at sending a car up the mountain and seeing seeing what they could do. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think the lack of manufacturer involvement, is that due to, like, it's obviously, there's a lot of people who know about Pikes Peak, but maybe there's not a lot of people who tune in every year or go to the event. Do you know how many people attend each year offhand? Uh no, not offhand, but okay. um, I do know that Pikes Peak is almost impossible to broadcast, which is kind of crazy because I used to remember seeing tons of video from it. But um, the last couple of years, they've tried to do live broadcasts, and between the terrible weather, all of kind of the uh, the electricity in the atmosphere, once you get up above 
uh, above tree line. Mm. There's tons of static and interference and all that. You're, you know, you're up above 12,000 feet. You're, you're getting like radio waves. There's lightning storms that, that roll through all that stuff. But if you have, uh, you know, if you have cables and all that sort of stuff down, down low, all the critters eat it, like the marmots and the, uh, <laughs> squirrels and chipmunks and all that, they chew through all the cables. You can't have drones on the mountain. The birds attack the drones too. If, even if you did, they had other drones the one year and, uh, don't necessarily know how well that worked out. I didn't. Uh, I wouldn't have expected yeah, that. What birds are attacking yeah. the drones? Oh, there's everything up there. There's hawks. There's, I don't know. I mean, I'm not not necessarily a wildlife expert, but huh? You know, there's there's all sorts of wildlife up there. Like every year, they put down the hay bales to mark the the edges of the course, especially in like the the sort of upper section of the lower section uh, down by Glen Cove and that, and um. The drivers use them all as reference points, but every year a bunch of them go missing because the uh, there's elk, there's deer, there's uh, bighorn sheep. Like they go and they seek out the hay bales and they they just start feasting on the hay. Huh. So all of a sudden these these hay bales are gone and and all these turns, a lot of the turns look very very similar, especially when you're going super fast. Uh, so you know it's just one of the many many challenges that these guys are running into every time they go out there yeah yeah obviously one of the main challenges is just the sheer altitude which then brings with it all sorts of stuff like oxygen um the lack or lack thereof and then temperature changes and stuff like that because the race starts at like nine thousand feet and then finishes at fourteen thousand one hundred and fifteen feet at the summit so you know, obviously you can speak to some of the things that go along with that, which also affects the, the surface as well, right? Yeah, it has an effect on everything. So the race begins at the seven mile marker up on uh, up on the mountain. And uh, that's up at 9,300 feet. And the course is 14, uh, just over 14 and a quarter miles long. And uh, I mean, once you get up into the the top section, there's 40% less oxygen than at sea level. So basically for every 3000 feet that you climb, you're losing about uh, 10% of the, the power of the engine. If you're running a, you know, naturally aspirated or force force induction helps, but you're still the, the lack of air density and oxygen up there decreases the power of the, the cars tremendously. So you're pretty much losing 35% of your horsepower by the time you get to the top. And, uh, the electric cars generally have problems with, uh, with cooling, even, even up at that altitude. I mean, they, I'm sure that they, they take measures, but it still has a, has quite a bit of an impact. I think that's probably more to do with the air density than anything. So along with, uh, the oxygen, you also have to deal with the temperature changes that come with altitude and just overall, you know, the conditions on the mountain, which, you know, it could be mild at the start and literally freezing at the top. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's usually the case that it's freezing at the top and, uh, it's kind of wild. So I, I neglected to mention that the entire, all of the practice sessions begin at first light on the mountain. So the, the practice sessions be, begin before the, the mountains actually open. So, um, Usually everybody lines up at the gateway around three o'clock in the morning 
and drives up to the seven mile mark or wherever your practice session is. Um, so the temperatures are already pretty low. So you'll be in the pits and it might be, might be 40 degrees and the temperature seems to every single time it seems to drop right before the, the sun comes up. It feels like it drops like 10 to 15 degrees. And, uh, so, you know, you're, you're at close to freezing temperatures usually before you even get started. And, um, you know, the road surface is cold. There's no light on it. There's usually dust and all that. So, um, you know, that's, that's a problem in itself. It's almost impossible to get heat into the tires. So a lot of these guys are using tire warmers at the, at the start. And then, uh, as you're going up in altitude, the reduced atmospheric pressure increases your tire pressure while the cold is kind of mitigating that. It's like the, the colder, the colder temperatures on the ground and on the pavement are you know, reducing the, the air temps inside the tire. So you're constantly battling. Like you, you really have to take into account before you even get started where your tire pressures are and kind of like project where you want them to be by the time you get to the end of the practice session and then interpolate that for start to finish on race day. And, you know, that, that could be on race day. It's anybody's guess as to what those conditions might be. So like last year we had beautiful weather all the way through June. Every day was perfect. Like you couldn't ask for, for better weather temperatures was, you know, blue skies, uh, the day before race day, 12 or 16 inches of snow up at the top ice. There was rain, fog, hail, everything Jeez. in between. And uh, race day was just wet and cold until you got to halfway picnic grounds. Then it was blue skies. And then you got into the, the W's, kind of the, the middle section of the course. And it was completely socked in with fog again, all the way up until the top. So it was wet, soggy, cold, and terrible. So you just, you never know what you're going to get on the mountain on any given day, and especially on race day. Yeah, and it's not like you get that much practice either, right? It's just sort of a couple runs. How many? How much practice time do you get total? So uh, I mean, each driver, if they're lucky, in the practice sessions, they might get five or six runs. And that's if absolutely everything goes to plan and they really hustle through it and kind of ask for forgiveness by running over time slightly. But um, the way that the practice sessions are structured, so um, we leave tomorrow and this weekend will be the first round of tire testing. They divide the mountain in half. So just lower level and upper level or lower and upper sections. And then uh, there's another practice session that is uh, the following weekend. They divide the mountain into threes. So lower, middle, upper. And um, basically, like, you you run each one of those sections once before race day. Um, or before race week, rather. Race week is uh, is practice and qualifying, kind of rolled into one. Um, but no competitor gets to run the entire length of the mountain until race day. So you're, you're really you're working in these smaller sections and trying to get as much data as possible and trying to get as many runs in and really trying to memorize the course and all the new bumps and, you know, the, there's no real, uh, no real like markers there that, that are consistent. So you're looking at a rock or the way a turn is, or the way that the tree line, tree line is. So you're looking for, 
for some kind of reference points while you're driving up the mountain to to know which section you're in or which set of turns you're in and how that how that turn is either it's a decreasing radius or it's a sharp hairpin or whatever it is that's coming up um so you have to memorize all of that in these little sections right before race day so yeah in even if you attend every single session and the optional session uh, in whatever section on uh, on race week, you're really like you're really getting almost no time in. You're getting each driver might get a total of half an hour to an hour of actual like runs in. So, yeah, and then you only get one shot up the hill, and that's what counts, right? Yeah, you have to put it all together and, and you know, if if history has shown us anything, it's uh, whatever you get in all your practice sessions is going to be completely different on race day. <laughs> and it's not going to be for the better. You're not going to get better conditions on race day than you did in any of your practice sessions. Yeah, that's got to be. I, it's just really amazing how, like, just imagine going into the first set of corners, completely different conditions than when you practiced. I guess entirely possible that you would have changed the car's setup and it's not like you can just go do like an install lap and see how the car is responding. Like you're just going for it immediately and you got to figure it out on the fly. And on top of that, all the conditions are going to change all the way up the mountain. You know, it's, it's almost like, uh, I, it seems obvious to say, but it's more like a rally than it is a hill climb almost. And it's not even really like a hill climb. It's that you're climbing up a mountain, you know, not just like a hill and it's so long, but you know, where in like a rally, you have to react to everything and just deal with it. It's kind of like that, but in terms of setup, not necessarily the course, cause you at least know the course a little bit, but just everything is either going to be the first you experience it that day, you know, or the setup that's on the car and you just got to figure it out and go for it. Yeah, I mean that this is probably the closest thing that you can possibly get to a group re, group B rally. Like I mean it's that's kind of the last of its kind. There's not really that many barriers like there's still spectators on either side of the road. It's you know, it's not like a, any kind of racetrack where if you run off you're you're running through a gravel trap or you might hit the barriers or you know there's there's some uh semblance of safety. Like this is all, the the roadway is really narrow and it's actually even narrow, narrower now that they paved it so, um, when it was all dirt or when it was partially dirt, all of the uh, the rooster tail, all, like, all the dirt that they would kick up when they were sliding through would build up on the sides and uh, create kind of a berm and slow the cars down. And now it's, you know, the cars are way faster. The course is way faster. There's way more bumps and it's even narrower and more dangerous, but like, uh, like I said, this is the closest thing that you can get to a group B rally in modern day times. It's counterintuitive. You know, you'd expect like a paved surface to be safer for race cars, but it's probably safer for like the public traffic that goes up the mountain, but it's actually more dangerous for the race cars. And I, <laughs> it's kind of funny, like vice versa, the dirt's probably safer for the race cars, but you can understand it's probably a little bit more dangerous for like just the average Joe going up the mountain, uh, which is kind of funny to yeah. think about. <laughs> um, I'd argue if you drive up and down that mountain enough times that some of the people on there shouldn't be allowed on the mountain at all. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's got to be wild. Because uh, I've seen some of the footage of uh, also of uh, like just a couple years ago. I think it was, or I was watching the Loeb's record setting time. And uh, like you were saying, with the people just right on the side of the road, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're still doing that here. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's not too different now. They've, they've, uh, at least in the four years that I've been going, they've tightened up the regulations even further. But, you know, there's times where people would run across the road. And, uh, you know, car is not far away. And they, a thousand horsepower car like Sebastian Loeb's car was, they come up on you quick. So, yeah, there was a, there was a dude in, uh, that video that I was watching who, uh, who did that. You could see he, he, it wasn't close, but it was still one of those things like, really? (laughs) That was not the time (laughs) to cross the road. Yeah. (laughs) One thing with Pikes too, like as a, as a photographer, like uh, I'm always sitting there listening and waiting to hear when the car starts and you kind of, even from like up high on the mountain, you can hear pretty much down into Glen Cove when a car is coming and when they leave. So like, you know, you can hear the overlap of the two different cars. One obviously will be a lot louder than the other. But um, so it, it blows my mind that, you know, I know exactly the dude that you're talking about that kind of hustled across the road and it, it's, it's, unbelievable that somebody could hear a car coming and be like yeah i'm just gonna i'm just gonna run across real quick for right a photo. right it's crazy but do they stagger the cars i'd imagine they stagger the cars it's not just like one at a time yeah, yeah they do so um you know when you're as a like i said as a photographer you're always listening so lots of times what i'm doing is listening for uh the radio chatter uh from either another photographer or from the uh the corner worker the flag person you can usually hear their their radios through the trees or you know off in the distance a little bit um but mostly you listen for for each car but uh they stagger them by probably 45 seconds maybe a maybe a minute or less oh wow and uh yeah i mean they're usually grouped too by by how fast the cars are so you know you don't have a a thousand horsepower car coming up on a on a three hundred horsepower car, yeah, makes sense. But um, they they do stagger them to try to get it in practice. They're staggering them to get as many runs in as possible, and then they turn the group around. And as soon as the last car comes up and they're clear, they hustle them right down. And uh, on race day, it's it's staggered by quite a bit more. So you'll have probably four or five cars, or maybe maybe less. I'll say three to four cars on the mountain at one time. It's actually more than I was expecting, to be honest. So you've got a lot of action and coming up the mountain uh, fairly regularly. Like even as a photographer, like if you are going to cross the road, you actually do have to be fairly strategic about it, you know, in terms of when you're going to do that and where you're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, the, really the only safe times, uh, the only safe times that I, I cross as a photographer is if uh, if I, if A, I can ask one of the flag officials would be like, Hey, where's the next guy? Or did they release the next guy yet? Um, or as soon as the car passes you, you scoot across and you get across the road as fast as possible and then get to where you need to be. Um, or when they're coming down and usually, you know, when they're coming down, they're coming down pretty quick. So you have to be at the very edge of the road so that they, they can see you and they can pass you or, you know, you just, wait until they pass you and then and hustle on down but 
you know, as a, as a photographer, you're trying to get as many shots in as possible and get to the next spot before they, before they come on, like even get to the bottom. So you have to, you have to have all of your, your shots sort of pre-planned and um, just be ready and be ready to change, to change course because the light is changing just as quick as, as the cars are coming up, you know, everything's happening at sunrise. So your exposure is constantly changing the way that the light is coming through the trees or across the rocks. You know, it's, it's never quite the same. So you have to adjust a lot on the fly. Um, so, but you just have to be, you just have to be ready for pretty much everything. What are your logistics like? So how do you get up on the mountain? Do you hike the whole thing or how does that work? Yeah. So, um, media media is allowed to either stay at one of the designated spots so like um you can stay in the kind of the pits pit areas and then go from there but you have to let officials know where you're going to be me personally i i request certain areas that i know i can get to different spots and there's a there's a handful of little turns or whatever where there's uh where there's a flag person that you you get to it you check in and then uh, you can park your car and, and hike from there. But uh, I, I tend to to park at like Brownbush uh, in the lower section or um, usually Brownbush ski area. Uh, Glen Cove. Glen Cove is where the pits are. From Glen Cove, generally I'll hike almost half of the middle section. Uh, or I'll, I'll, hike, I'll park up at Devil's Playground which is the top of the middle section and work down Boulder, Boulder park. Now those are kind of like my regular areas that I, that I'll, I'll park the truck and, and get out there. But pretty much every session, I, I mean, I cover a lot of ground very quickly. So I try to hike or I, I, I generally end up hiking three to four miles out and back. So you said Glen Cove is where the pits are, and that's that's so, like uh, halfway up, well, right? Well, the practice, yeah. Uh, Glen Cove is technically like the halfway point, but um, when you're running the middle section, that's where the cars leave from. When it's broken up into thirds, uh, when it's broken into thirds, basically it's a um, start line to Glen Cove, just before Glen Cove. Um, the next group will be at Glen Cove, running up to Devil's Playground. And then there's a third group that runs from Devil Devil's Playground to the summit. So that's the the way that the the three upper, middle, lower sections are broken up. On race day, do they just bring all the cars and the trailers? Like, is everybody doing prep at the start then, or do they still yeah. have a lot of gear down at Glen Cove? Nope, everybody's so on race day. Everyone is in is at the start line. Ah, okay, gotcha. Um, another challenge too on once they once they start running cars on the mountain, even like practice sessions, wherever you park after a certain time, once they clear the course, that's it. You're stuck there. So if you didn't get to the, to where you want to be, like you can't drive to the next place. So you have to hike. So you're bringing everything with you on your back, all your cameras, all of your kind of survival gear, you know, uh, the weather changes so much. So you, you need to have any kind of clothes that you're going to need, like jacket, whatever, um, all of your layers. So, yeah, it's like proper hiking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, uh, the lower section is, it's basically all woods. It's pretty like socked in with trees. So, um, 
you know, I, I've already torn a bunch of jackets just because you're you're like bushwhacking it down there. It's like these these pine trees and like there's lots of sharp like broken sticks and that. So uh, your cameras take a beating, your clothes take a beating. You can tear through your shirts and your pants and all that stuff. Um, and it gets it gets warmer down there pretty quick, and it's, it's a harder hike down there I think than it is up top because uh, you're just you know you're like pushing through trees and like blazing your own trail versus uh, up above up above the tree line it's a lot more uh, open but um, yeah download so download is complicated to shoot because like I said it's so socked in with trees like that's where you find a lot of people doing uh, doing like long pans through the trees uh, sometimes you can shoot through like there's a little pocket or an opening uh, within the the tree line. Um, there's like lots of like really good little like streaks and pockets of light that you can play with. Um, once you get into like up towards Glen Cove, it starts really like opening up, and then the uh, the grade of the road itself starts getting a lot steeper. So you can kind of shoot down through different sections you can shoot down towards some of the other turns once you uh once you get into like ragged edge and uh double cut if you look at those two on the map like yeah. it's kind of like the middle the early middle of the um of the w's or those uh you know the uh the switchbacks climbing up the middle section but the so that's one of the areas where you see a lot of uh a lot of like the iconic pike's peak shots is all, is all up in those those switchbacks up the side of the mountain, uh, first legs, second leg, all that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Shooting yeah. down, and because from there you have multiple vantage points, like you can probably get the car a couple times from mm-hmm. the same spot. And you know, the, you know, when you see the photos later, they look, you know, they're interesting and different. Then it's not just the same angle. But yeah. I'd imagine down low in the trees, like I'm, I'm looking at a map right now. I brought up a map, so I had like had a reference of the places that you're talking about. And, uh, yeah, down low, it just looks like you pretty much have to pick a corner or a straight and you shoot there. And if there's trees, like there's nowhere else you're really going to be able to see. Um, yeah. you're lucky to get one shot, like one good shot each run when, uh, when you're down low. Yeah. Do you ever cut to like, I'm looking at some of the corners here instead of walking, you know, along you know, do you walk along the road, or you just cut through the woods, basically? I, 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 I might not do. I might not take the same approach as a lot of other guys do, but I go like diagonally across everything. I almost am never on the road, and uh, you know, some of the some of the guys that I see there regularly joke that if uh, if you can see me, then I'm I'm not doing my job right because <laughs> I'm like I'm like Sasquatch. I'm bashing through the woods, and I'm I'm you know, I'll get from one turn and skip three turns and end up in another one and start working my way around or so, you know, I, I, I almost never take the road a, because it's slower. And, uh, I think I'd kind of just like the challenge to like taming the mountain, if you will. There's a lot of times down low when it, when you try to skip a couple turns, you're, you're kind of climbing up the mountain on like hands and knees with all your, all your stuff on your back and just trying to keep your, your camera from dragging in the the dirt but you know it gets pretty steep and it's a it's a lot of like mulch and and like downed logs and stuff so you know it's a it's a pretty challenging hike if you 
if you take the unconventional route. Yeah, it it definitely sounds like the kind of thing that you would get addicted to after you you did like do it once because of the challenge and the reward that you get. Because I mean, the photos that you've captured are awesome, and like it just makes it seem like such an epic location that the fact that you have to hike through this stuff almost adds to it rather than like takes it takes away. You know, it's like. I don't know how to describe that. You know, it's just like, it's literally the challenge of it. Like that can be a positive, even though it's difficult, you know, it's just kind of nice to have to, I think you've said it before, you have to earn the shot, you know? Yeah. And you know, you, you kind of, it's that, that, uh, intrinsic value that it adds because you've, you know, you've earned that shot, but you also know kind of like the story of how you got there. So when somebody asks like, you know, where were you when you got that shot, especially if it's one that, you know, isn't the norm it's kind of cool to like, you know, you're almost like, uh, you know, you got, you have the insider knowledge. So, and I think too, like the, a lot of the shots that, um, that aren't the norm are because I've, I've hiked some weird route or I've, you know, or I've just hiked back and forth. And that's kind of the only way that you see these, the non obvious shots. It's kind of the same as a racetrack. Like it's better to walk it on foot than, and, or like walk through the, the spectator areas versus just staying behind the fence and shooting through the same holes as everybody else. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I love walking a track and every new track that I go to, I always try to make a point to walk it because there's only been a couple times where I've had like transportation access where I could just like travel from corner to corner. And every time I do that, I feel like I just get locked into a certain mindset where you're just like, okay, here's the shot from this corner. If I go to that corner, here's the shot from this corner versus if you just hike it you know you'll be walking along you know actually i really like this angle here this detail here that you would have never seen if you just went from major corner to major corner Mm -hmm. so for example one of the uh one of the shots that you shared pretty recently of mine that was uh through boulder park that was actually the first photo i took at pike's peak the first year so i parked at boulder park um i got out and like you know Pikes Peak is is one of the other things about Pikes Peak is it feels very like you're an insider kind of club. It's like, uh, you know, you're a real photographer if you've got it out there and and you can get some shots. So, um, but anyway, I got out and I, the first people I I met and said hello to were Larry Chen and Will Rogie and Brandon Cato. (laughs) And, uh, so, you know, we talked for a couple minutes and it's pitch black and everybody's got their little headlamps on and, uh, I started, I just kind of looked around like, I I didn't really know what the road looked like or what the shots would look like. So I just started hiking up. So I crossed the road and started hiking through all these boulders and stuff. And I ended up pretty much just going straight up the ridgeline towards Olympic, which is the second to last turn before the summit or the last turn before summit rather. And, uh, I just kept climbing up and up and up and up. And, uh, you know, it's dead quiet. It's pitch black. You're climbing pretty like bouldering. Basically it felt more like rock climbing than, than hiking. And, uh, there was nothing out there, but like bats swooping around and like, you know, you can hear them like squeaking and flapping up above your head. And, uh, that would, that shot that you shared was pretty much when I was almost to Olympic. So I'd been hiking for just about an hour or rock climbing, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But, I would, I'd been climbing for just about an hour. And like when the light finally came across, Jeff was 
maybe the fourth or fifth car that had gone. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like that was the first shot I, I took and I don't, I haven't seen anybody take that shot yet. It's definitely not like a common one. And that was shot with a, a 400. So you can imagine how much, uh, you know, kind of what it, what it would look like from any other vantage point. Yeah. It's a really interesting story actually. Cause when I saw that shot, you know, without knowing that, you know, I would have assumed that you were on just the side of, uh, the road somewhere and it's just looking down to see it but uh now looking on the map also so that was looking down into boulder park yeah so it's literally from uh there there is a trail that goes up the side of uh of that through cod cut and all that but i took a completely completely different way like i was looking down into basically the abyss like the uh, side of the mountain that it's just all rock fall and uh so I was at, if you look on the on the map, there's there's a hard ridge line that goes up towards that last corner, towards the guardrail. So I was on the side of that, and I don't think people even hike there. And uh, every time now that I've I've hiked the the proper trail up around Cogcut, it just doesn't look the same. It doesn't look anything like that shot. Hmm. And I don't think you can even get that shot without being so far off to the off the beaten path. And, uh, you know, just the fact that it was the first shot that I, that I had, had gotten. And, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, like this is one of the, one of the events that was on my bucket list. And it was one of my first real assignments as a freelance photographer. And, uh, my first for road scholars, that was like, uh, bent. So there was, there was a lot rolled into it. I'm like, all right, I, I feel like validated people aren't hiring me just because they think I'm nice, you know? Yeah. That's, like, that's awesome. And also like what a shot for the first shot. <laughs> yeah. Like, did you look down and just go, okay, we're good. We're going to be good. <laughs> this is going to be a good yeah, bit. It was, I had to do something because there was no other options. <laughs> so I was like, I was looking at, it, I was like, what can I make of this? And then I saw that how the turns kind of stacked up and it went from, the the top right of the frame and squiggled through and kind of trailed off into the 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 same bottom right of the frame so it like kind of completed out completed the composition and uh it took a little while to figure out but you know by the time jeff had come through and i now that i'm thinking about it i was completely wrong he he waited until or he was he left he was one of the the kind of cars at the end but um I remember looking at that shot and or uh, being up there and not exactly knowing what to do until maybe it was like three or four cars that before he had come up and I was like, and I had figured it out and I was able to grab it. Nice. But when you looked at it on the back of the camera, were you just like, okay, this is a great shot. You know, you just, did you feel like, uh, uh, not a sense of relief, but you're just like almost excitement. Like, okay, got that. You know, that's, this is awesome. The setting is awesome. Like it's going to be a good week. I don't think I even looked to be honest. I, in a lot, like a lot of these things, I just, I kind of shoot on instinct and then look later, Really, or like scrub through really quick to see how many of the shots were complete trash. Luckily it bikes like they're kind of few and far between. Uh, this is like the one time that I will say that, like my, my strongest work is always at Pike's Peak. Hmm. 
do you think that's the setting or does it just lend itself to the type of photography you do? Like, do you, do you set out to get certain types of shots or do you just look at whatever presents itself and just shoot away? Um, so both kind of, I, so to answer both of your questions, so Pike's peak, like it, it's, it's one of the most spectacular places I've ever been. And, um, you know, the landscape itself is just absolutely incredible. And, uh, your mission as a photographer on Pike's peak as like, uh, you know, photographing the race is kind of to, to make this road look good in in a weird way, you know, or in a unique way, or like to show how amazing the landscape is. And, you know, there just happens to be a road in there. So maybe that's how I kind of look at my shots. And, um, I know I do a lot of, like, I don't plan to, but when I look back at my work, there's a lot of, um, big landscape, tiny car. So like, it's almost like where's Waldo in the frame? Like you'll see the roadway and how it snakes up and some of the turns and usually like the, the backdrop of Colorado Springs in the background or the rest of the Rockies in the background. Um, and then somewhere in the frame, there's a tiny little car or it'll be a little pocket of light. So like the, I, I like to show the way that the light comes through Pike's Peak and like just you get almost these zebra stripes in the lower sections. So usually I'll do somewhere it's like rim lights on the trees and then like, you know, the car's right there. Or last year I did one that I, I was really happy with. And, uh, it was double cut, like double cut and ragged edge where, uh, cam was coming up in the GT four and the light was showing the two different levels of the roadway, like, uh, the elevation change. So, um, I don't know. I'm a, I'm, I don't really like go in there with planned shots. I, I just try to always use the, this crazy landscape in a different way. And that's, that's another one of the, the really nice challenges about Pike's peak is that like to really find new and creative shots, you have to put that much more effort in. It's really easy to get good, like passable shots, no matter what, but to get stuff that really stands out and that, you can really be like, okay, I use that in a, in a way that nobody else has seen. Yeah. I think that's where like hiking and spending a lot of time on the mountain or just like looking at different, um, kind of genres of photography can, can really help. And then always like getting people shots. Like, um, you know, that's, that's one of the main things about Pike's peak that, that makes it so much different than every other race too, is, uh, the people and how passionate they are and you have grassroots guys and like you know the uh the local the local guys that are that are rubbing elbows with guys like romaine dumas and reese millen and you know there's some some big names that still come out to pike's peak so and everybody's kind of on the same team like everybody wants to see everybody get up to the top of the mountain successfully and everybody get up there safely so you know, that's always a big storyline is like getting the people and the emotion that's, that's in that race. It's gotta be fairly tough though, actually, because just because of the logistics of where you are most of the time, do you have a lot of time to get people in the pits or do you pretty much only get that on race day? A lot of it's on race day, but, um, so like I said, I, I, uh, I cover a lot of ground very quickly. So I will spend some time every time in the pits whatever section and i'll try to grab some of the 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 shots of the guys mingling in that and talking to the officials or whatever or a little bit of the drivers meeting 
uh, try to get that before I, I really need to get up to where I need to be. So usually there's half an hour or so there in the pits. And then, uh, if I need to drive, drive quickly and, and get to a spot and, and hustle over, usually you have to be in place in, I want to say like half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. If they, you know, if, uh, they release the cars a little bit late or if the sun hasn't quite come up yet. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it, it's really, it's just, everything is moving as quickly as possible and getting to where you need to be. So I know you have the 400 with you. Do you take a wide angle to get sort of that, uh, I'm using like air quotes here, like that landscape kind of shot, <laughs> or do you typically use like a 7200 or something like that? Uh, so I usually do, uh, I, I always run two camera bodies, uh, and I usually do, uh, 24 to 70 and then 70 to 200. And then I rent the 400 for, um, pretty much Glen Cove and above anything in the middle in the top section. I don't really, I find that it's kind of like, it's way too much lens for the bottom section where you're, you're pretty limited. Uh, but I, sometimes I, I have a 16 to 35 that every now and then I'll do really wide, crazy pans, especially through some of the switchbacks. And, uh, I used to have a 50 millimeter 1.2 that I would break out every once in a while just to get like, you know, the super shallow depth of field shots or to get some of like, uh, the light coming through the trees. Hmm. This year I, uh, you know, I've been trying to like keep myself on my toes and, uh, I bought a Helios 58 F2. So it's you know, one of the swirly bokeh lenses. It's this ah, Russian Soviet little, little like shitbox lens. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to use that in the lower section. Okay. I'm kind of excited to, to play with that. How's the sharpness on that lens? Uh, hit or miss. <laughs> it's really good in the center. It's super sharp. Uh, oh, in really? Center. Yeah, generally. Um, uh, anything outside of that, like I, I like to shoot weird compositions off to the corners of the frames is pretty not great. So, <laughs> but it's a great lens and I'd recommend that anybody give it a shot. It's easily adaptable to different cameras and like, it's fun to, it's fun to have something that's not perfect and kind of forces you to, to play with things in a different way. Is that like so, one of those full manual lenses? Does it have like the aperture control on it or is it? Um, nah, it's full manual. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no. That's... It's either going to work great or it's going to be the worst decision that I can make. So. <laughs> now I'm sure you'll get something with it. I think, yeah. um, I, I think that's the best way to just discover new things too, just to put yourself in a scenario that, just engages your critical thinking, you know, cause sometimes it's so easy to use like a 70 to 200. It focuses so fast. It can do pretty much everything that from anywhere you can get a shot. But with that lens, you know, you got to stop and go, okay, I can't just point and shoot. Like I got to think about this shot. Otherwise it's going to look like crap or I'm not going to, you know, fully utilize what you have it for. So it forces you to think at least. And you know, you'll end up thinking of something new just because you don't have the capability just to point and shoot and end up with a decent shot no matter what, you know? Yeah. That's something we talked about in, in the last podcast. It's like one of the gifts that you're given as a photographer is like the ability to look at things as new every time. And 
like something as silly as a little lens that is in most ways limiting is it's kind of there's freedom in that to just try it use something different shoot the same shot that you shot last year but shoot it in a completely different way or with a completely different lens and you know it might work it might not work but you know i can't imagine ever going anywhere and shooting the same race with the same equipment and the same thing every single day like yeah we should as photographers we should always be trying to like look outside the box and see how we can you know use this equipment to show something in a different light every time yeah no i, t- I totally agree I, I think it's a really cool idea i'm curious how those are going to come out and um terrible <laughs> It'll be fun. So it'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if nothing else, I'll use it a lot. Like uh, when the guys are working on the cars and, you know, for that sort of stuff, mm. like some of the portraiture, it's really, it's, it's a great little portrait lens. Yeah. And, I've... uh, you know, for just playing with, uh, with car, like lines on the car and everything. So, yeah. Have you thought about taking out like a film camera at all? I do. Uh, oh, yeah. I have my Fuji six by nine camera that will be in my bag. Nice. And I have, uh, I have a Mamiya C220 twin lens reflex that uh, I think I brought. I think I brought it last year, but I really I didn't use it much. But um, I mean, those are more for like in between, like shooting landscapes and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, this year I also not to get completely stuck on gear, but I purchased a a Ricoh GR3X just as a little like fun camera because uh, I think as photographers, sometimes we, we get too hung up on shooting like a really good shot. And with, you know, I shoot with one DXs. So you're not, you don't, you miss a lot of moments in between because you don't want to lug around a 15 pound camera and a a 24 to 70 or, you know, kind of fiddle around with it. So I got this little thing for in the pits and, you know, after hours and when the guys are working on the cars and tech inspection. So that's a cool idea, you know, kind of play with, uh, some street photography and portraiture and, you know, just little snapshots in between. Yeah. That's a really cool idea. I'm I'm trying to like, uh, you know, this is my fourth year shooting the race and like, I still have a lot, a lot to go. There's a lot more to play with, but I think I can kind of maximize how I capture the event and, and tell a little more of the story through kind of playing around and finding, you know, making it feel less like a job. Sometimes, sometimes I get hung up on that. It's like, you know, you, you want to get the perfect shots and, you know, you forget to, you forget to just mess around. And sometimes that's where the perfect shot is. It's kind of in between the, the ones that you're thinking about. Yeah. Well, it helps you with variety. I think, I think if you yeah. get too focused on what you need to do, that's all you see. Whereas mm-hmm. if you stop and try something different, all of a sudden everything just opens up to you and you're like, Oh, well, I could try that. I could try this. I could try that. Versus, you know, you're just trying to check boxes, you know, like got that shot, got that shot. So I I think that's a really cool idea. Actually, I was just thinking about that. And I, that is, I think that's brilliant because taking just a small camera around, it's sort of like, you know, it's what people do with phones now. People take so many pictures with phones because it's inconspicuous. And I don't know about you, but there's something about the, um, it's not the focal length of like the typical iPhone shot. I don't know if it's the crop or what it is. I really like the way iPhone shots look sometimes. Um, like I'll take pictures and post them on Instagram, like at an event with my iPhone. And then I'll look back. And I'm like, you know, 
some of these iPhone shots are better in that like spot that I was at than the pictures I took with my actual camera. Not like quality wise, but like the framing and just I don't know, there's something about the shot. And I've looked it up, it's like equivalent to a twenty four millimeter. So Yeah. I don't know what it is. Do you, do you, have you noticed that at all? Yeah, so uh Zwart comes out we we bring him out to uh as like a guest to a lot of our our events like kind of a you know honorary guest he's, he works a little bit he like you know drives with our clients and all that sort of stuff but kind of in the mornings like during all these events he pretty much just shoots with his iphone so it prompted me to start shooting with my iphone and we have these little iphone shoot offs nice but it does uh you know you we were talking about it the one time and he's like, you know, that little iPhone camera lets you get into places that a real camera lens just it mm. doesn't even fit. Mm. So sometimes like sometimes you can get really cool, unique shots with either the wide camera or like just the fact that the camera is is the size of, you know, the little clicky part of a pen. You know, it, it really is just such a tiny little thing. And sometimes it opens up an entirely new world of the environment around you. Yeah, that's true. I, one of the shots that I do a lot is I I probably overuse the uh, what I term I don't know if this is the actual term the worm's eye view. Um, yeah, from you're on the floor almost. Yeah, uh, I do that a lot with my normal camera. But now that you mention that, when I do it with the phone, I'll turn the phone upside down so that way the camera is as low as it can possibly get. And don't it's also give away all our secrets, man. <laughs> I use that one too all the time. <laughs> it's also easier because then you can just push the button from the top. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, now that you mentioned that, that's way lower of a perspective than I can get with my actual camera. Yeah, which I'd never thought I mean, about that. One of the things that our my photography professors in college taught us it's like the best camera that you have, or you know, the best camera is the one that you have on you. Like it doesn't matter what you're using as long as you get the shot. So I think the iPhone and like you know a little camera like the Ricoh or you know any of these little pocket cameras, anything that's fun and lets you see the world in a different way that's the best camera that you can use at that moment yeah plus a little camera like that is so inconspicuous they can just take a picture whenever you know it's not like the one thing i hate about taking pictures is when you whip out something with a big lens everybody looks at it and yeah i hate that because i don't really like shots where people are like posing for it or like they'll stop doing what they're doing because they see the camera and you're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> they try to get out of your way. Yeah, exactly. Um, nope, you're my subject, sir. Or yeah. I was using you to frame out another car or something. Yeah, I feel like uh, with a smaller camera or just an iPhone, you know, you don't really have that effect, which is kind of yeah. nice. Yeah, and I think it, I think it just feels less formal. Uh, I think that's what I'm finding with this little Rico, and uh, I, I kind of. I ended up with it because it has a, an APS-C sensor. So the iPhone image quality falls apart very quickly. So you can't really blow it up. With the, the Ricoh, it's got a fixed 40 millimeter lens and APS-C sensor. And like, it does a really, really good job. Like it's, uh, it's up there in terms of like flexibility and latitude and, and raw files hmm. um, with like the Canons, you know? Yeah. So... I don't know. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how I play with it on the mountain and like what it allows me to do that, you know, say something like a one DX either doesn't let me do, or is just such a chore to shoot with that, you know, I guess I, to some extent it, 
I have no excuse now. I have a little fun camera that like takes almost nothing to get a great shot. So it's like, yeah, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no risk or I don't exactly know the word on, um, there's no reason not to. Yeah. So going back to the mountain, is there any fun stories that you want to share or like wildlife encounters that, uh, oh. are, are fun? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this mountain, the mountain's amazing because, uh, like for a, a lot of reasons, but, uh, there's always some, every time you go, there's some crazy story. And, um, if you notice, uh, leading up to race week, all these signs with people's names and, uh, different turn names kind of start to pop up. And, uh, I'm, I'm backtracking a tiny bit now, but, um, on race, on race day, they take away all of like the mile, the, the turn mile markers, all the mile markers are gone from the mountain. So the, uh, that's another reason that the drivers have to memorize where they are by sight. But, um, what does pop up is little things like a no stopping sign or no parking sign in, uh, in the trees over by engineers. Hmm. And, uh, there's a sign that, that pops up. Uh, if you look on the map, it says sump. But uh, during race week, that is uh, Pastor and Pope's Pond. Um, there's a turn that is called Fred's Fred's turn with an arrow pointing down. Uh, but I mean, whenever whenever you go, whenever somebody goes off in a very spectacular way, they end up with a, a little, a fun little sign to uh, commemorate that moment. So, for instance, the uh, the no parking one, the engineers it's one of those turns that, that people mistake for another turn. It's like, it's way tighter. It's a decreasing radius turn. Uh, I think, but anyway, it's one of those turns that, that catches people off guard. And, uh, usually they end up flying off the road and into the trees. Uh, what was it? I forget which car last time had spurred the, uh, the no parking sign, but there was a car that launched off and went way, way into the trees and was completely stuck there on top of it on top of the tree that it knocked down for quite a while so they had to you know they get the tow trucks and all that sort of stuff in and i actually think that there was a there was a dune buggy that had run the the king of the hammers that dude went off the road during the race flipped uh i think it was at engineers but he flipped over rolled into the trees and uh landed back on his wheels just fired the thing back up and <laughs> drove out and finished the race but uh <laughs> Yeah, there's there's all sorts of stuff. Uh, Fred's turn. Fred's turn is in a weird spot. Is it's, uh, it's after Brownbush. Uh, do you still have your map up? Yeah, I've got it up. I see Brownbush, and then there's. Yeah, so look directly up above it. There should be another turn. Uh, Heitman's Hill. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, Heitman's Hill. So uh, Fred Beach is is now the uh, the director of the board of the race, uh, but he's run the race in the past, and uh, you know we've. Road Scholars has sponsored competitors for the last 10 years or so, uh, actually a little longer. And uh, Fred Beach was one of those guys that we sponsored uh, back when he was running his 996 Turbo. And uh, he was running like a showroom stock class. But uh, he somehow managed to <laughs> miss the guardrail. And like, you look at this turn and, uh, you know, there's it's pretty straight leading up to it. So... Every time, every time I pass by it, I laugh because there's the Fred's, Fred's corner, 
and uh, he somehow managed, I guess he got on the brakes and then went left off the mountain. So if you're you're going straight into the, the braking zone of that, that turn, he somehow went left and went off the side of the mountain down into the trees. <laughs> and like, you know, it, I don't know. I don't know how he did it. It still blows my mind each time. Huh. But uh, yeah, there's, there's just always, people always end up crashing. And as long as there's no big injuries, then uh, you get yourself a sign. But um, there's That's funny. Randy Rule, one of the, the race directors, had gotten basically struck by lightning when uh, one of the competitors went down on the motorcycle. There ended up being a, uh, a lightning storm, uh, an electrical storm way up on top of the mountain, um, up kind of Olymp- Olympic area, Olympic uh, turn. Wasn't this related to how yeah. Devil's Playground got its name as well with the lightning? Yeah, yeah. That's a good point that you make. Um, so Devil's Playground, they call it because up at uh, at 12, 13,000 foot mark, uh, the lightning strikes the rocks and like jump leap, basically leaps from rock to rock. So when you're up there and looking at the rocks, you can see all these these pockmarked rocks with like, it looks like a softball size chunk cut out. And that's all from the lightning striking and jumping from rock to rock to rock. So uh Randy Rule and and some of the uh, you know the the race control guys were up there trying to clear this motorcycle that had had gone down, and uh, you know there's an electrical storm and the the lightning must have struck a rock that was nearby, leapt from the rock to the chain that they had tied up to the motorcycle, and Randy was holding onto the chain, and basically like got zapped by lightning and blown back however far. Um, so, I mean, stuff like crazy stuff like that happens. And he, and he was okay. Guy, yeah, he was okay. Amazingly. That's wild. Randy's a badass though. He like, you know, drove a motorcycle through, I guess, through all of South America, uh, through Colombia and Mexico and all that. So Damn. he just, yeah, I, I forget what the, the name of the race is. I will, I'll have to come back and, and report back on that. But, you know, they were like paying off the cartels and all that sort of shit. And like, <laughs> Jeez, you know, it's you. You have to be a real, a real badass <laughs> to be able to to do what he did, and it's something like it's like two weeks on a bike or something. Damn, but uh, yeah, I can't I can't speak intelligently on what that is. My brain just can't hold that much information. But uh, I'll ask him when I see him, and I will. I'll recount that story in in better detail. <laughs> but uh, there's another guy who. Uh, I forget what his first name is, but they call him like Afro Thunder or something. He's a photographer and uh, he was over near engineers and one of the cars got loose and started coming towards him. He was up on the, he was up on kind of like one of the hills and the switchbacks. So uh, the car started basically climbing the hill and coming really close to him. So the story goes that he ran off into the woods to get away from the car that was approaching him and ran straight into a bear. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, it's crazy shit like this is always happening on the mountain. Dude, that's a bad day when you're trying to avoid getting hit by a car and then you end up running into a bear. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which is worse. <laughs> I'd probably rather get hit by the car. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. What happened what happened there though? Like did he just like peace out after that and the bear just left him alone or uh, must have. I the bear was probably just as confused. <laughs> this dude with an orange vest coming running up at you with a I mean, if, if this guy lives up to his name, he's probably got some kind of big, crazy afro. Yeah. So, 
but uh have you you haven't seen any bears or anything like that i have not seen bears yet aside from uh uh last year there's i think it was last year uh, last year the year before there was a there's a family of bears that lives up at halfway picnic grounds but they had made their way down basically to where the uh the starting line was and uh they ended up in the trees by the by the pits so they had a uh, animal control and the rangers over there with uh tranquilizer darts just just in case the bears started making their way down um and started going the wrong direction uh they were going to tranquilize them dang but luckily the the family bears stayed up in the trees the entire time and uh until the race was over and and then made their way off into the woods and nobody had to get tranquilized but uh, i've seen i've seen the uh the bighorn sheep I, I was climbing little pike's peak one time to see if there was any shots from up there and uh i get over to the other side and there's these bighorn sheep that are coming up coming up towards me <laughs> so uh needless to say i i didn't want to tackle with those guys but you know there's marmots they uh they come running out all the time and they squeak at you you know they're they uh they call them whistle pigs out there because they they make this really loud squeak chirp noise and it looks like a like a hybrid between a, a beaver and a, a gopher okay uh, so those things are out there all the time and they're usually running out across the roads or as you're hiking you'll hear some scurrying and and there's either gonna be one right there on a rock next to you looking at you or it's... or a bunch of them will scatter um down low in the uh in the you know the the lower section i was shooting by blue sky and I was kind of wandering along a trail and uh, I found a spot to shoot. I was doing slow pans through the trees down towards one of the turns. And I heard, uh, I started hearing noises and I, I looked around and there's probably 30 or 40 guinea fowl all around me. And one of them, like the, it must've been the male that was guarding the pack or something was up on a, was up on a log. Once again, almost eye level with me. And, uh, but like, they didn't seem to care. They're just walking all around me literally like inches away wow um, so <laughs> you run into that sort of stuff there that's a, that's amazing it's it's such a hardcore like photo motorsports photo experience i'd say like there's nothing like it no definitely not i mean nothing nothing that i've shot and i don't think there's anything quite like it in the u.s i mean i don't I don't think I don't think I anywhere. Think anything that I'd rather do, at least. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you haven't run into a bear. Because <laughs> yeah, well, let's not jinx that. <laughs> I hope I hope I don't run into a bear either. Yeah, you're gonna have to pack some bear spray or something. But uh, yeah. That, so that is like when you pack for Pikes Peak, like aside from your usual your usual gear, like um, obviously with the temperature fluctuations, you have to pack extra shit like batteries because you can go out there. I usually carry uh. I have six fully charged 1DX batteries. Dang. And usually if you're in the top section where it's cold, you'll come back with like half of them are at like one bar or pretty close to being dead. Wow. So, you know, I you, you really have to like treat it like camping. So those batteries I've learned now, you have to keep them in either your pockets or in your jacket or like in a you know, sweatshirt in between your jacket and your body to, to keep some heat in them. Um you always have to pack like tweezers and a first aid kit because you never know what you're going to run into. I've gotten splinters in my face from branches and uh, and pine trees 
like smacking me in the face and gotten splinters and you know big not like normal splinters you get like a big uh like toothpick size splinter that'll go through your jacket or your shirt or whatever mm. and uh you know you have to yank those out um but you know all, all sorts of all sorts of stuff like uh you know the usual like cut and burn stuff um you get blisters pretty quickly if, if you're hiking like a wild man like i am you don't have a good pair of uh of hiking boots and you know it's probably a good thing to have other like hiking pants because uh like right now i was talking to one of the flag the guy who does the uh the upper section uh flags and he always every year he gets to do the uh the checkered flag but um they've been monitoring the the top section and there is a ton of snow up there there's like he said 14 foot snow walls jesus and, uh, yeah and there's a couple feet of snow like covering the entire the entire top section from devil's playground all the way up so if you're going to be hiking to get a shot you're going to be hiking through that stuff and uh last year we came straight from europe and i had on dress boots essentially like a you know casual dress boot and uh and jeans and uh as i was hiking up cog cut there were sections where i was kind of breaking through the semi-frozen stuff and and going almost hip deep you know i'm six six and i would sink basically up to my hip so there's a full three feet of my leg that would disappear under the snow into uh the little rock crevasses and so you know you you end up completely soaked wet cold then by the time you get down off the mountain it's 80 degrees so you know, everything starts really melting and you're just damp and miserable. So, <laughs> I mean, you pretty much, you have to pack for every weather condition because no matter what, you're going to run into, it could be beautiful or a couple minutes later, it could be raining, it could be hailing, it could be sleet, could just be wet and damp and cold. And then all of a sudden it's going to be 80 degrees again. So, you know, tons of layers extra you know extra t-shirt extra socks all that sort of stuff and like i said first gate first aid kit and um the altitude really does a number on you so at uh at the summit it's 40 percent less oxygen you dry out really quickly and just that that lack of oxygen really takes a toll on you so it's something like pedialyte or um, the electrolyte salts like element that sort of stuff coconut water you have to make sure to really stay hydrated and and uh, you know, avoid altitude sickness. The only way, if you get altitude sickness, the only way to get rid of it is come down off the mountain. And if you're trying to photograph three, five, eight runs, whatever, and you're trying to actually get your shots, you don't want to get, you know, uh, airlifted off the side of the mountain. Yeah, you got altitude sickness. You don't want to yeah. be that guy. Do you carry? I saw that they have like these little oxygen bottles. Do you carry one of those? I don't. No. Have you tried them? How do they even work? Uh, I've tried it. I don't, it hasn't, I've never, I haven't gotten oxygen. Uh, I haven't gotten altitude sickness since like my snowboarding days way back in, mm. uh, you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago. So, gotcha. Um, I mean, I have a, I have a personal theory that like once you get oxygen, uh, I keep saying oxygen sickness, altitude sickness a couple times that your body, you almost get like a muscle memory where your body isn't quite as successful, uh, susceptible to it. Cause, uh, lots of times, like even last year, right, we came straight from Europe, like I said, and 
our first practice session was up in the the top section. So I basically did the first thing, the the first day with within whatever it is like thirteen hours of being back in in the U.S. I was up on top of the mountain and I I did just fine. I was a little bit winded and mostly jet lagged, but you know I haven't gotten altitude sickness any of the times that I that I've been out there. Yeah, it definitely beat it does beat you up though. Like it's there's a noticeable uh, there's it's just everything takes more effort and you get a little bit of like you feel a little drunk up there you get a little delirious uh, and your balance takes a bit of a hit but you know it's the uh the altitude sickness is kind of a, a real thing and like every year there's somebody that that does get airlifted off there because they they push themselves a little too far so that'd be me <laughs> <laughs> so, hey you like i said you won't be the only one man there's there's a lot of people that that overdo it is it usually like so, photographers or is it a lot of people who like come to see the uh, race and usually photographers yeah hmm. that sucks man you would think there would be more more spectators but i guess they're just sitting I mean, around I'm... chilling i guess it's that's not as bad yeah hmm. yeah and it's less effort like if you're it, this event definitely as a photographer it's a it's like 50% photography and 50% mountaineering. So you really like, you have to work on your physical fitness before you get here. And it's even that, like, even if you're in pretty good shape, it's going to put that to the test. So, yeah, it just seems like the ultimate challenge of photography. Like it's a huge track, constantly changing conditions, changing temperature, elevation, you know, you get five shots at the car, (laughs) per practice yeah. session it's just like it's everything is like a worst case scenario but the payoff is epic so it's still worth it <laughs> it's like what everybody in motorsports dreads it's nothing but variables yeah it's constantly changing there's no consistent and everything's process. hard to get to <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's, really, I, it's it's amazing that like that these guys can't even pilot these cars up the mountain in, in such a short period of time you know like i think the first uh the first run up pike's peak in 1916 the guy did it in 20 minutes or something like that and they're guys that are running now and they're down in uh romain dumas did it in just under eight minutes in the the volkswagen idr so you know and before that sebastian loeb had the record and it's just every Every year, if you look across the the span of uh, Pikes Peak's history, there's always people are constantly pushing it a little more, and it's it's always the worst case scenario, like you said. So, it's a uh, it's just such a unique race, and you know, I'd, I'd really love to see all the manufacturers and uh, and even like spectators. Like it's it's for such a well known race, it seems like uh, it doesn't get the coverage that it should. So I'd really like to see like, you know, it kind of getting the recognition and, and praise and uh, attendance that it rightfully should have. I was going to ask, what do you think it would take for that to happen? Because there's, it's obviously got the history. It's got all the hallmarks of a major motorsports event, you know, at the same level as something like Le Mans. You know, like Le Mans has the history, the tradition. Um, it's an epic location, like... Pikes Peak has all of that, but yet, like you said, it just doesn't have 
everybody knows about it, you know, but it still just is doesn't have the numbers in terms of, I guess, people watching. And like you said, it's hard to broadcast. But what do you think it would take to bring it to that next level so that it was like a major event that everybody tuned into? Or do you even think that's possible? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I honestly, I hate to say it. I think money has to be, you know, money and marketing really need uh, to be poured into the event. And uh, like this is this is really like a race that's that's run out of true passion and, and love for what it is. And, you know, it's a generational thing, too. So like there's tons of family like uh, families that have run the race over the years. All of the flag people are like it's like a generational thing. Like they they'll do the same corner that their their father and their grandfather had done. So, you know, it's 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 run entirely by volunteers. There's not really a ton of money in it. Um, the city of Colorado Springs, so much of their, their money comes from tour, tourism on the mountain and the mountain has to get closed down for an entire day. So they lose a ton. Um, so, but really I think to, to get manufacturers in too, like it needs to, it needs to be a proving ground, which I think, um, like you're kind of seeing it again. Lamborghini did a run there, and now with Peugeot, uh, not sorry, not Peugeot, uh, Alpine and and Radford and um, Ford getting back into it. Um, you know, I, I think I almost think there either needs to be like a bigger purse, or just that the race itself needs to be to have kind of that uh, that same sort of prestige that Le Mans and like any of the these WRC, like the grueling races, like Baja or any of that sort of stuff kind of needs to have that, that status to really be recognized so that when you say that your, you know, your new electric car beat a, a production record on, on Pike's peak, then it kind of says something to, to the world. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I'm surprised the park doesn't work with the race more. You'd think that it'd be mutually beneficial, but I guess it's not. I guess they're not super fans of it if they're uh, losing a bunch of money. You'd think you'd think there'd be like a deal they could work out, but you think so? I don't know. I think I think unfortunately it all comes down to money and like uh, you know, it it takes a lot of effort to get this race to actually happen every single year. I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's more often than not kind of uh on the fence of like it's kind of always in jeopardy and uh for someone that cares so deeply about this race and like i, I you know i hope to be part of this for a long time like i i would hate to see it end after such you know such a, an amazing history and uh maybe part of that is like education about what the race is and and like i said like once you go to this thing man it's like it's impossible not to go back. Like you, you get hooked. You're, you're a lifer. Basically. It's just so different when you get to meet like the race organizers and all the flag people and the photographers and racers that come year after year, it, it's so community based. And uh, to see that everybody's like, everybody's on the same team and everybody's rooting for each other. They're, you know, it, it means a lot more than just getting a car up a mountain fast. Yeah. You know, it's uh it's tradition, it's it's history, it's heritage. So do you think it could yeah. use more like 
pageantry, sort of like you have. I don't know if you watched any of the uh, Indy 500, but the the Indy 500 is just this like big American show. You know, it's got you know you got the flyover, the national anthem, all the pre-race ceremony. There's so much building up to the race that it has this feel about it. Like even if you're not into oval racing, like I don't really like oval racing, but I'll tune into the Indy 500. You know, it just feels like such a big deal. And if you think about it, all that really is is marketing, you know? Yeah. And it makes me wonder if it had more of that, you know, if that could uh, boost it up quite a bit. But still, you need people to see it somehow. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's the biggest challenge, I think, is, like, is visibility. And I think that people f- have forgotten because, like, we don't really watch TV anymore. Like, it's not broadcast on NBC and on Speed Vision or whatever, you know, whatever we used to watch it way back when. Or you buy the VHS tape, you know. Uh, I think, I think it it either needs to be recorded and broadcast to like the masses some way. And I mean, it's, it's hard to say because like even when you're watching it on TV or watching it on there on on all the cameras, you don't get the the same feeling that you do when you're there. Mm. It's just you don't. You don't get the scale. You don't. You don't get to see the ten percent grade that these guys are running up, and you know. You don't. It. It just. Uh, it's hard to convey all of. All of what that race really is and what it takes. So. But I mean, to to I guess to answer your question, yeah, it could it could absolutely use every bit of that pageantry and and all the marketing that it could get. But I fear it would take away from the grassroots kind of feel of what that race is. Yeah. Those things are sort of more mutually exclusive. You can't really have, you can't something, you know, can't be grassroots, but also super popular and, you know, one of these major events, but it absolutely deserves to be a major event. Like I'm a total believer now. Like I, I always thought Pikes Peak was cool, but after talking to you and doing research and like watching videos and things and just learning about it, it's an amazing event. <laughs> And there's it's unbelievable. Yeah, there's nothing in the world like it. And just that that fact alone, you think, would would bo- elevate it to the point where everybody just wanted to know more about it. But yeah, yeah, it's like I, I mean, I, I'm only scratching the surface with like the stuff that I'm talking about. It's like there's there's so much more to it, and like there's a hundred years of history of that race. And there's a, uh, I mean, if if you wanted to learn more and and kind of. Uh, see some of the some of the stuff that i'm trying to describe but not doing a good job of um there's a documentary on netflix about the race i think it's like an hour and a half or two hours long but they go through like you know some of like the the crazy cars over the years and how those guys were getting up the mountain uh they they talk about the bikes at one point they had semi trucks running up that that (laughs) mountain when it was all dirt yeah they had uh you know there was a there was a competitor, I, I want to say it was one of the Bashholtzes, but I I think I'm wrong, and I would be doing whoever did it a disservice. But uh, there was someone who ran in three separate categories all in the same day. It's like raced a car up, got to the summit, took a helicopter down, got into a car, an open wheel car or something along those lines, and then did another run, and then came down and did it on a motorcycle. That's amazing. You know. 
Yeah, and like the the Unsers, the Unsers are like a huge name in motorsports. They've won twenty five times. Like they're you know, wow the Donner Donner family. Um, you know, Mark Donahue's son, David Donahue, has been running the race. He finally got a win in his class last year. Like there's there's so much history and so many motorsport legends that have been on that mountain. I it's it's mind boggling. When, once you really get into the history of that race and how significant it's been. I mean, it was once a it was a stop on the the IndyCar tour on that I think of the Indy five hundred circuit or something like that. Really? So it's just yeah, it's just when you start really unpeeling the onion of of what Pikes Peak has done for for automotive racing and like you know, how big it was and how big it should be and how it would be such a crime to, for the for this race to cease to be. I mean, it's just I think it's the best race in the U.S. and I put it up against pretty much half the the races in Europe. I mean, the only things that I don't think it entirely stacks up to is maybe the Nürburgring 24 and, and Le Mans, but for just completely different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Le Mans is just, but, you know, it's Le Mans. It, it's just the pinnacle of endurance racing, but this is just completely different, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I probably would say that I, if I had to really, if, if push came to shove and I had to make a choice between Le Mans and Pikes, I would absolutely go and attend and shoot Pikes over Le Mans. Damn. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I might be getting to be a little bit of a fanatic. <laughs> you know, just every, it's one of those things that every year you go to it, it's different and it feels yeah. different. Like if you feel you get more and more closer to it and more attached and the people, like I said, the people in the stories are really what, what make it just so significant. And, um, you know, those, those people start to feel like family too. Like every, you get butterflies in your stomach with every competitor that goes up to the line. And it doesn't matter if it's Romain Dumas or if it's somebody that's their first race or, you know, somebody that's been doing it for 30 years, it's, you just there's real consequences on this mountain and you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And uh you know, you just want that person to get to the summit and celebrate and go into the visitor center and get their donut and <laughs> you know, like the racers, every racer when whenever somebody finishes, they they're up there, they're hugging each other, they're having like there's a little party on top of the mountain before anybody ever comes down. <laughs> and then as the guys are coming down, like all the crowds kind of spill out into the roads and you know, the, the drivers pop their hand out and everybody gives high fives or they bang on the hoods of the car and the roof of the car. It's just, you know, it's just, it's such like, it's such a celebration just to be there and to, to get on the mountain, to get up to the mountain, to race on race day. Like you've beaten all the odds and you've raced in one of the craziest fucking races that there is. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a way yeah. different experience too, even as yeah. a photographer, cause you're like right up in the action. You know, yeah. it's not like most racetracks where they feel a little bit uh, disconnected just naturally from the barriers and everything where it's like you need access to certain things like this is just literally a road and you have obviously you have to follow certain rules, but that's it. Like, <laughs> you know, there's no barriers. It's not like there's restricted access like that. Like you said, the fans can get right up on the edge of the road, you know? Yeah. I mean, all you're really behind is uh is a little set of uh, catch fences 
and they're not real catch fences. They're like the barriers that keep you in line when you go to a sporting event. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. So, and it, and as like a, you know, a photographer, part of the crew, like you get to be on that mountain at times that no one else gets to be. So, mm. you know, you're, you're there at three, four o'clock in the morning. So you look up and if it's a clear sky, you see into the, infinity of the stars in the sky and you see the milky way and, and all that stuff they're shooting stars half the time wow and you know you're hiking along and just with all your shit on your back and it's freezing cold and you've got this little circle of light illuminated on your headlamp and you know you might be walking up the road and if you're like me then you know it's out of nowhere reese millen comes and picks you up off the side of the road and is telling you about his first time driving a porsche race car and how good it is and how he's a believer you know, and you get out and you hike even further and you get to watch the sunrise that almost nobody else gets to see unless you're on the mountain or if you, you know, if you're a diehard hiker and you've hiked up there. But, you know, it's just it's such a unique experience and it's one that uh, I wouldn't trade for anything. So, yeah, I, you know, it's, it, I, it's, I'm sold. It's hard. It's really difficult to uh, to put into words. Yeah. How good this race is and how much of a, a meaningful experience it actually is. No, I, I think you've done a pretty good job. And also with the photos that you've taken, when you pair the two and you talk about the stories behind them, it's, uh, I think I didn't know that, uh, one shot you took was your first shot on the mountain, you know, <laughs> and just the story behind that. Almost. And, uh, yeah, I mean, almost every shot that I've, I've shared too is, uh, is a shot that I've shot, for the first time it's like i almost never shoot the same shot over and over again yeah and just the entire thing i think is just amazing and i'm not sure i don't really have anything else to say about it is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover before we uh we cut it cut it off here uh probably but i don't i don't think so <laughs> it can wait till the uh, the after after, after action uh, race podcast yeah <laughs> And maybe next time we'll do uh we'll try to do a little visual or something where the spot you know it's like the spot in the shot and the story behind it yeah that'd be a cool series to get into with other photographers yeah i agree you you had that idea and that uh essentially we could do like a youtube podcast but uh you know we could be looking at the photos and talking about how that shot came about and all sorts of stuff uh get into the details about it which i think would be really fascinating um yeah i mean i think it's an entire half of the story that's missing because as a photographer you can you can do a really good job of telling a story from your vantage point uh you know showing the emotion and the the feel of whatever the scene is but there's usually the the backstory behind how that shot came to be yeah that goes kind of uh unnoticed it ad it adds so, value too like you know just like when you see a product and they talk about how they make that product and all the work and the hours that go into that product, you know, nobody ever sees that with a photo with a photo. You just, you go onto Google and you search Pike's peak and you get all these amazing pictures, you know, and you just have no idea what it took to actually hike up that mountain to that spot, you know, with their schedule and everything and actually get it, you know, and to be able to talk about that, I think just enhances the value of photography in general. Absolutely agreed. It's so easy to for people to forget that there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into getting the photograph and 
you know, the skill set that you have to have to reliably be able to, to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That would, um, it'd be really great to highlight that. Since it's not a tangible product, I, I think that people forget that, you know, it's, you have to be a skilled, skilled artisan of sorts to, to do these things. Yeah, for sure. So, well, we'll leave it for, uh, that podcast to go into detail on that. Otherwise, uh, Andrew, it's been great having you on again. And, uh, I wish, uh, Cam and the Road Scholars crew the best of luck at Pikes Peak and, uh, wish you the best of luck getting some awesome pictures. Really looking forward to seeing what you get this year, especially with that, uh, that uh, Russian lens. <laughs> yeah, that, the Helios. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, you know, I, I'm always excited to share my shots from Pikes Peak and uh, I usually go to our Instagram at, uh, at Road Scholars One. But um, I am very proud to say that we, looks like we were lined up with Mobile One this year. So they'll be helping us not only with product and, and the car, they're going to be um, helping with the content side of things. So, and, uh, you know, we're partnered up with Yokohama. They've, they've jumped on board and sponsored the car, which is exciting. So that's awesome. I think we'll be able to share not just through us, um, but, you know, all of our sponsors and the motion engineering. And, you know, I think, uh, I think we'll have a really good story to tell this year. I mean, that's cams got a huge jump from the GT four to this thousand horsepower, 1200 horsepower monster that he's in, which is, you know, you're attacking the course in a completely different way and it's building an entirely new skill set. So it'll be exciting to see him over the next couple of years really grow into that car and for Joey and his team to explore, you know, optimizing that car, like bring it to its full potential, lightening it, you know, so, and then hopefully, you know, for the next couple of years, we get to really uh, build ourselves up into contenders for overall and, you know, we'll see. We'll just get to see where it goes. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we're going to close it out there. Like I said, uh, Andrew, it's great having you on. Really looking forward to the uh, next couple podcasts uh, covering some more of Pike's Peak. And uh, everyone else, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, if you want to follow us, it's uh, Motorsports in Focus on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. And come to Pike's Peak. Yes, and come to Pike's Peak. Support the event somehow. Hopefully uh, they stream it or something.